in today's episode. Christian Picciolini. Our mission back then was to terrify people. When I shaved my head and I wore boots, they they would cross the street and they would avoid me. He was a neo-Nazi skinhead leader. Making them feel worse than I did was sometimes the only way I could feel good about myself at that time. Here is the secret information is most people who become extremists come from pretty normal backgrounds. They don't come from radicalized families. He now is a peace advocate. What's disturbing the most to me, Rob, right now is the way that they're actually, that extremists are recruiting people online because they know that there are marginalized people there. Uh, but they're going to, to traditional safe zones on the internet, places like uh, forums dedicated to depression and autism spectrum okay. disorder. That's a really tough question because I, you know, there are so many, uh, you know, I regret every time I hurt somebody. Join the conversation now. Welcome to Rob Conrad Conversations. Conversations with extraordinary people that motivate and inspire. Learn, grow, and impact lives. Subscribe now and hit the bell icon for a new conversation every week. Here comes the sunshine and burns away clouds like they never were. Hey, this is Rob Conner from Switzerland. And when he was 14 years old, Christian Picciolini, son of a middle-class Italian immigrant's family in the United States, joined and later became a leading figure in the first organized neo-Nazi white power skinhead group in the US. He recruited young people into the organization. He committed countless acts of violence against people of different race and religion and for, uh, fought for his ideas and ideals of white supremacy. He continued like this for eight years until he started to have conversations with the people he believed to be so despicable and realized that they are actually more alike than different. And eventually he changed his mind and he left the organization. He's now a peace advocate, a TED speaker, co-founder of a nonprofit organization called Life After Hates and the Free Radical Project that supports people in leaving extremist organizations. He's an Emmy Award-winning director and producer and author of the book White American Youth, my descent into America's most violent hate movements and how I got out. Thank you for taking time, Christian Picciolini. Thank you, Rob. That's a mouthful. You just said a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess I, I, that, that one I had to uh, that one I had to write down. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. Thank you for having me. I yeah, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it, man. So, um, yeah, when I first heard the story, I was amazed. I mean, it's it's rare that people make these kind of turns, and. I'm glad to see that you're alive. I mean, well, uh, I guess you you uh, did have some issues with threats after the whole. Oh yeah, I'm sh I'm sure if I move your screen over to the left a little bit and look at my email inbox, there are probably threats there right now. As a matter of fact, uh, but yeah, no, I've been uh, I left that movement 23 years ago um, when I was 22 years old, I, I got in in 1987 when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when I got in, it wasn't about the ideology. I didn't know anything about that at 14 years old. I don't even know that I studied, uh, you know, national socialism or Nazi Germany in school or paid much attention at that point. Uh, what I was looking for was uh, a sense of identity and community and purpose. Uh, I didn't feel like I got that mm -hmm. growing up, uh, or at least I struggled with it. 
Yeah, that's what I was a bit surprised about to hear because um, you you didn't come from family of you know abuse and alcoholism and broken you know broken home uh, with radicals already you know in your in your family. So you came from a normal middle class Italian family, um, two parents. So so they were working a lot, but that's about it, I would say. Right, and here here is the secret information: is most people who become extremists come from pretty normal backgrounds. They don't come from radicalized families. Actually, uh, the Anti Defamation League in, in the United States uh, published a, a statistic that said that ninety percent of people that join extremist movements mm -hmm. don't, you know, they're not radicalized in the family. They're raised, they're, they're radicalized outside of the home. Mm -hmm. uh, so my story is actually very typical uh, in the movement. But I, you know, I did have. Uh, you know, there was trauma in my life. There was that sense of abandonment, uh, which can sometimes feel like the loss of a parent uh, as a child, uh, you know, as if a parent dies psychologically anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot for some people, it could be a very deep pothole that you step into as far as uh, what detours your life, uh, or it could be, you know, a multitude of very shallow potholes. I would say I had a multitude of shallow potholes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I dealt with, a, you know, the crisis of, am I Italian or am I American? I was, What's you know, identity? yeah, it was, it was a, an identity crisis because I lived in such a, an Italian bubble uh, in, a, in a town in Chicago uh, with the same families from the same villages in Italy that my parents came from. So, you know, they were very close with each other and I didn't live outside of that as a kid, but the rest of the world was America and I wanted to be there. And I started to resent who I was. Uh, and, you know, I started to resent my parents because I felt abandoned by them. So I think that that really, because I never resented who I was. I, I was very proud of being Italian. Mm. Uh, I'd gone to Italy, you know, uh, during the summers almost every year as a kid growing up. Um, and that was the only time I saw my parents because they were working okay. every other day. Uh, so, you know, for me, it was more about wanting to belong to something, wanting to find that community, that family that I thought I was missing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was always driven by purpose. I was always very idealistic. The problem was, is nobody found me to channel that energy into something positive. Somebody found me to channel it into something negative. And that and was Clark Martell, right? That was a, a skinhead by the name of Clark Martell, who was, uh, you know, I believe 26 years old at the time when I was 14. And, and uh, you know, I was standing in an alley in a back street uh, smoking uh, a joint and, and he came up to me uh, and he grabbed the joint from my mouth and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile, to keep, you, to keep control of you. Uh, I didn't know what a communist, a Jew, or even what the word he used was docile, mm -hmm. uh, but it, he paid attention to me. Okay. And after that, he put his hand on my shoulder and, and he was very nice to me. And he, he, he brought me close and he said, you should be proud of who you are. And, and there are people who want to take that away from you. And, and that's all I needed to hear yeah. because it didn't matter what he was selling. I would have bought it. Mm -hmm. I found it very interesting in your book, you described when you went to those first meetings and when you kind of oh. felt the energy in the room and you felt in the people screaming and all sharing the same idea. That's something you really connected to. That's where you felt, felt a purpose for the first time, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like I was on a different planet. Uh, and I had been sheltered in this Italian-American uh, very small world for so long that suddenly I saw 
that there was something else outside and it, and they welcomed me and it was, you know, they wore uniforms. It was that identity. It was all crystal clear and very uh, standard. Uh, the community, you know, everybody was friendly and they hugged each other and, and, uh, and, you know, the purpose was very clear. They told you exactly what they wanted you to do, who to hate, who to hurt. And then I started to believe it. And then I started to push it. And it didn't take long for you to adapt, really. So they were, and to, to, to um, kind of get sucked into the ideology. No, not at all. Uh, not long at all, because at first it wasn't about that. It was about the music and the friendship and, and you know, dressing a certain way that now all the people that had bullied me growing up for who I was, whether I was short or because my parents didn't speak perfect English or uh, the clothes that they put me in as a kid that I didn't have any control over. Uh, they, when I shaved my head and I wore boots, they, cro they would cross the street and they would avoid me. Mm -hmm. That made me feel like I had gone from powerless to powerful. Uh, it wasn't true power, of course. Uh, I had gone from, you know, worthless to, to, you know, somebody who was saving the world. I thought I was, you know, because that was the only information I got and I swallowed it because I needed to, to stay a part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I believed it too, because I didn't know anything before that. So that was the only information that I had. And I, I, I saw it as truth. It was almost like I went to school and learned that two plus two is five my whole life. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that you could do to tell me that two plus two is really four I because I knew the truth and you didn't. Okay. Uh, and it filled me with power. Do you think at that time someone could have saved you from, from the whole mess you get into? Had a, a soccer coach walked up to me in that alley at 14 years old and said, let's go play uh, soccer. I would have gone and played soccer because I didn't know what a skinhead was. Nobody knew what a skinhead was. I didn't want to hurt people. I wanted to just be accepted, but I had to hurt people to stay involved. And then it filled me with this sense of false uh, power. So it was less about the actual ideology. It was more about finding something to believe in, whatever it is. And oh, sure. That just happened to be... The soccer coach never came. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's what happened. The soccer coach never came and, and that other person did. And, and how I do my work now is I try and be that soccer coach for, for people, uh, both as they're you know, feeling marginalized and starting to look into these types of things or when they're in and they've recognized, I don't, this is not what I want to do. This is not what I agree with, but I can't leave because I, there's nothing to go back to. Yeah. Uh, because everybody, I tell you, Rob, everybody in that movement and any extremist movement questions it at some point because it's based, it's illogical. It can't work. Uh, it's not natural to want to hurt other people simply for, you know, what they believe or what they look like or who they believe in. Uh, uh, but it is natural to question those things. And it's important that when they do, they have a way out. Okay. In your book, you describe rather graphically how you were, you know, beating up um, you know, people of, of uh, the skin colors and you know, for, you for no reason except that they have the wrong skin color or that they're of Mexican descent or Jewish or black or whatever. Um, when was the first time when you felt it's not right what I'm doing here? I mean, there must have been a point, you did not grow up with violence, so there must have been a point where you thought, hey, maybe beating up somebody or beating somebody into a bloody pulp is not the right thing to do. Every time, I, every time I hurt somebody, I, 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 I felt it was wrong. So what did you do? Uh, 
because I was, I felt that the benefit that I received from it, the sense of respect or this, you know, belonging was, was more important to me than the fact that I was hurting somebody else. You know, here's the truth is I hated myself. That's why I hated other people. I was projecting my own self-hatred. So when I hurt other people, it was making them feel worse than I did was sometimes the only way I could feel good about myself at that time. So I fooled myself into thinking that it was like a drug when I hurt other people or when I preached uh, this ideology or when I sang racist music on a stage, it was like a drug. It made me feel good for a short time, but I always knew it was killing me and everybody around me, but I couldn't stop because I knew that if I stopped, it would kill me or it was all I had. What would I go back to? Okay. Yeah, you, you wrote just a sentence I wrote down, actually. Um, you wrote that the violence and dominance became pleasurable and you felt completely in control of your life. That's something that stuck with me. Um, and I was completely out of control. Yeah. See, that was the feeling that I felt in control, but there was no control in my life. Uh, I lost everything I had because of that lack of control. So, so for about eight years, you kind of uh, rose the ranks and became a pretty prominent figure. Um, you, you know, got a lot of people into the organization. Um, at what point did you start to feel, okay, that maybe this is something that shouldn't continue for, for forever? I would say right around the time I was 18 years old. Um, that's when I met a girl that I fell in love with, uh, who was not a part of anything that I was involved in. In fact, she, she hated it. Mm -hmm. But somehow she, you know, we found a way to love each other. And uh, at 19 years old, we got married and uh, we had our first child. And at 21, we had our second. And certainly from the time I met her, I, I was challenged that sense of identity, community and purpose uh, for the first time since I was recruited. Because now I had to think, was I a father or was I a hate monger? Was I uh, involved in, in this family or was I involved in this other family that I had surrounded myself with to boost my ego and my purpose uh, came in question. Uh, so that was really, I would say that that was the, the first major catalyst for me, but there were certainly many, many more as I started to meet more people and be open to that and have meaningful interactions for the first time. And then um, when came the point when you said, I want out, I want actively, I want to I leave this organization, I want to kind of cut the ties to everything, I want to leave this old family and start a new one somewhere else with another purpose? Yeah, I would say in 1995, very early in 1995, uh, after I decided that I, I, I was running the record shop at the time to sell racist music, but I was also selling other music as well, hip hop and and punk rock and heavy metal. And uh, I never expected to sell any of that. 75% of what I was selling was music I was importing from Europe that was racist. Mm -hmm. uh, but people came in to buy that music who were black, who were Jewish, who were gay, who were Asian. Uh, and uh, over time, I started to connect with them. I started to see them as human beings instead of the demons that were in my head because I'd never had these types of interactions with people. Uh, and I started to feel uh, that I had more in common with them than the people that I, uh, I thought were my family. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it was a, it was a long process of, of 
it was not a, a quick transformation. I think, you know, it took eight years, really, because every day that I, I was impacted by people, both good and bad, it would either push me further into what I was doing or pull me farther away from it. The problem was, is nobody ever committed to either one of those. If somebody had committed to pulling me further, uh, pushing me further away by uh, attacking me or by uh, insulting me or shaming me or any of those things that I, I completely deserved at mm. the time, uh, probably, uh, that would have pushed me further away. Mm. Uh, if somebody would have committed on the other side also to saying, you know what, like the people in my record store who were compassionate to me, even when they didn't have to be, uh, then I probably would have gotten out earlier. Okay. Uh, and it's not their responsibility. I would never make it the, the potential victim's responsibility to be compassionate to somebody who can hurt them. But uh, I think that as human beings, if we all just do that all the time, are just compassionate, uh, you never know who you're affecting. Okay. How did that work out practically? I mean, you were a uh, you know, white supremacist, uh, you know, where you have have or still yeah. had or still have tattoos all over your body. Uh, yeah. Why did you know black people and Jews and and gays come into your record store in the first place? <laughs> That's a good question. I wish I, I I wish I knew who they were to this day because they were strangers at the time who knew me, who knew about my uh, involvement. But I never really knew who they were until I started to get to know them. And I wish I did. I knew, uh, you know, and I think, you know, I think that they were just very brave, very forward thinking people who maybe saw something in me that I didn't see at the time. Uh, and uh, and uh, they, you know, they were good human beings who said, you know what, I don't see a monster. I see a broken, you know, person. Uh, who's wearing armor to, to cover up his own wounds. Okay. Uh, and I'm very grateful for them because they saved my life. Okay. What kind of conversations did you have with these people that opened your eyes? What, what were you talking about? You know, at first it was just about music. It was a music store. So they would ask for recommendations and, and, uh, And I had no idea how to recommend hip hop at the time. I don't think I'd ever listened to a hip hop song. <laughs> Not exactly your kind of music. Huh? No. <laughs> so I knew that they were, you know, asking to try and, and, and feel me out. They were trying to get information from me by listening. Uh, so, you know, some of the, the very impactful conversations, uh, there was a young uh, black man who had come in several times uh, and he was always very, you know, happy and, uh, And friendly, but I was not, you know, I was just a, a business person. I was not interested in being his friend. Uh, but one day he came in uh, very visibly upset. And uh, I had asked him uh, what was wrong. Uh, and, uh, and he told me his mother ha had recently been diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, I, I suddenly could relate to that because my mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer just recently as well at that same time. And, uh, And it was those connections, those un that understanding that I had never in my life had these types of conversations with people like him mm -hmm. uh, or the other people that I'd met. And suddenly I was, and I realized what was in my head, what I thought of them, it didn't exist. It, it, it wasn't, it didn't relate to my, you know, real experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more I had these situations occur, the more I, I, I realized I was being fooled. And that I was fooling myself because I went along willingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the people from your former organization, um, what kind of people were these? I mean, I, did they all come from similar backgrounds? Did they have did they have the same struggles? 
yeah. no, you know, no a certain pattern that you that you that you saw with all these people everybody had their own trauma uh, some form of it it could have been abuse it could have been uh, you know neglect it could have been privilege it could have been poverty it could have been a million things as uh, you know people who witnessed their their father commit suicide at a young age or uh, you know children of divorce uh, every single person was broken uh, just like every human being is broken frankly um, Unfortunately, uh, you know, these human beings that I was involved with were intercepted by somebody who had a motive. Um, you know, there were good people that I met. There were good people that I recruited that I knew were good people that I sold lies to, to, to get them to join me. Uh, and, um, you know, there were bad people too. There were people who were so broken that if, if, you know, they weren't institutionalized or put in prison. They wouldn't have got, you know, they wouldn't have been, people wouldn't have been safe, but there were good people. And uh, I'm sure, you know, even in Switzerland, you've heard, uh, you know, our president here say the, the phrase very fine people on both sides when he was talking about the Charlottesville rally. And certainly that's, you know, a point of anger. And I was very angry when I heard that. Uh, and then I thought about it. And then I had to believe that there were very fine people on both sides, because if I didn't believe that, then I would be denying myself my own change and everybody else that I've worked with over the years. And in fact, I've, I've since that rally worked with many individuals who were there, who've, who've since denounced it and said, I don't want to be a part of that. It suddenly became real to them. You know, it's not behind their computer screens anymore. Suddenly they're faced with, you know, fights and, and uh, you know, words and, and people dying. And uh, that might be enough for some people to say this, this whole club, the social club I was a part of is not what I want to be a part of anymore. Um, tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing now in your organizations. Well, I help people disengage from extremist uh, movements, and, and I work with people on the far right. I work with people uh, who are Islamic State supporters, uh, people on the far left, and because I really do believe that people gravitate to these movements, these extremist movements, for the same reasons. It's not because of ideology. It's because of that search for identity, community, and purpose, and, and our broken journey for that. Um, and I don't argue with people. I don't tell them that they're wrong. I want to, of course. So, you know, I hear some awful things come out of people's mouths that really are no different than anything that I said when I was, you know, 15 years old. Uh, so I, I recognize how ridiculous it is. And I filter that noise out. And I listen very, very closely for their potholes, those that brokenness in them. And then I fill them. Uh, I will work with people to, to get job training or an education or mental health therapy or uh, tattoo removal um, or uh, life coaching or even family counseling. Uh, because when people start to feel better about themselves, when those voids are filled, there's no reason to blame the other for something that is happening in their life because they're accountable. They now know it's because of their own brokenness that they do that. Uh, but I don't stop there. I also, uh, I introduce them to the people that they think that they hate. Uh, and I've had conversations, I've sat for hours with Holocaust deniers and Holocaust survivors and, uh, you know, Islamophobes and, and uh, imams and Muslim families having dinner. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing to see that demonization be destroyed by humanization. How do you get those people at the same table? I, 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 ha I 
I have to turn them away. I have so many people reaching out to me saying, I want to be your Jewish person that meets with that Nazi, or I want to be the gay person who shows that person who hates me that he has, or she has nothing to hate. Uh, I don't have to ask because I have so many people asking me to do that. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Do you feel, or how do you feel about your former self years later? I feel ashamed. Uh, you know, I feel, uh, you know, I feel responsible for a lot of what is going on today, uh, both directly and indirectly for the ideas that I put into the world and more directly for the actual physical words and music that I put out into the world, because, you know, I know that today it still affects people. Um, you know, just recently I found out that Dylan Roof, who, who massacred nine people in, in Charleston, uh, yeah, in Charleston, South Carolina, Charleston. In, in 2015, four months before he had walked into that church, had posted on a white supremacist website, my band's lyrics asking for more music from my band. Now, this is 20, you know, 20 plus years after I had written it, many, many years after I've left, after fighting to try and have that music removed. And of course, it'll never go away uh, because of the internet. But those are the consequences of our words, even when even when we're finished speaking them years later. And I feel responsible for that. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, there was no internet, so it was just in the very early stages. And I'm lucky because of that, because yeah, if, there, I mean, if the internet was around, I'd be in a lot more trouble. Let me just tell you that. Now it's just much more amplified than 20 years ago. So does it worry you how, how easy it is for influencers like your former self to access young people who are looking for purpose for meaning in their life. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think everybody would agree that the internet is full of millions of young people who feel marginalized, who maybe don't have, you know, positive relationships or any relationships in real life who build them online and online. You can be anybody you want. You can have any identity. You can join any community. That's what it's for. And, uh, you know, your purpose now is curated for you because it is fed to you based on your interests like news. Uh, and, uh, and, and what's disturbing the most to me, Rob right now is the way that they're actually, that extremists are recruiting people online because they know that there are marginalized people there, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they're going to, to traditional safe zones on the internet, places like, uh, forums dedicated to depression and autism spectrum disorder. Uh, they're starting to recruit younger, uh, by, by recruiting over multiplayer gaming. Uh, you know, when they're young people wear headsets and they're playing, you know, whatever game. Uh, but they're also putting uh, messages in videos that are on, online about video games like Minecraft and Roblox and, and Fortnite. You know, people go to, to the to YouTube and they watch videos of people playing video games. I used to like to play video games when I was a kid, not watch people play them on, on the internet. But I never understand why people watch recorded games. I, it's, it's a thing. It's very popular. I mean, there are millions and millions of views, but in these videos, sometimes, you know, in a very benign Minecraft video, in the middle of it, you'll hear somebody trying to recruit you into, you know, what do you think about the Jews? Do you believe in the Holocaust? Things like that. And then, you know, they kind of do it to desensitize young people to it. 
they make memes and jokes about it. So people spread it around and laugh about it. So that something like the Holocaust becomes a fable. It becomes ancient history and it doesn't affect people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a thing. It's called mimetic warfare where we can desensitize people by giving them the same information over and over and over so that they get so tired of hearing about it or they, they just accept it that it doesn't have the same impact anymore. So they're using so many tactics now because of the internet uh, you know, not to mention fake news and, and propaganda that I used to have to read in a book now can be accessed with a click and it's actually fed to you because now you've gone down a rabbit hole. You've watched one video on accident and your recommended feed thinks that you want to watch more. So it's the Internet is radicalizing us. OK, so th these are organized efforts to influence other people. So these are not individuals who are you know, speaking their mind. These are organized efforts by by radical groups to radicalize other people it, it you know it's not so much about the groups anymore these days like it was when i was involved now it's it's much more of a leaderless resistance mm -hmm. uh and the internet really made it that way for people to be connected without a central structure mm -hmm. uh, and uh it's you know it's it's led by movements by the idea and the leaders but the people are the ones engaging in this it's the followers it's uh uh, you know, it's people who are good graphic designers take it upon themselves to make flyers uh, mm -hmm. for the internet or memes and, you know, good writers post blogs. Some people are making podcasts. Uh, it, you know, it's really anything that you or I can do to, to you know, have a, a presence on the internet to, to boost your podcast or to, to talk about my book or anything like that, they're doing and they, they can now monetize it. We never could figure out how to make money back in those days. We sold music and, it, you know, we sold a lot of it, but it wasn't, you know, I never received the paycheck for, for the movement or for my music. Uh, now they're making money off of YouTube ads uh, because their videos are getting millions of views. They're making subscriptions off of their podcasts. They're buying Bitcoin and investing that. They're creating their own social networks because they're being deplatformed from the mainstream one. So they've created their own. Uh, this is a whole ecosystem that they've now created. That is, is not just a fringe movement. This is now part of the fabric of, of our society, no matter where we live, especially in Europe. I mean, we've seen the far right grow, uh, immensely, uh, over in the Eastern last Europe, year. especially yeah, in Eastern Europe. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I have to say it because, you know, I know people are probably tired of hearing about it. Maybe not you in Switzerland, but Americans are tired of hearing about it. But the influence coming from Russia uh, with these disinformation campaigns and the propaganda, um, that's really where this is coming, uh, coming from. Uh, thousands and thousands of, of, you know, sock puppets and chat bots and are still continuing today, even, you know, having started before our election for president. Uh, but you're seeing that rise in Eastern Europe because there are four former Soviet republics that want that Putin wants to reclaim again. So he's grooming all these players throughout the world. One thing that scares me is that uh, during World War II, we, Hitler didn't have worldwide support for his ideas. Mm -hmm. He had a few allies, but they were, you know, they were insignificant. The ideas that are now spreading with the far right are much more far reaching across Europe and the United States and even in places like Brazil, uh, where okay. Bolsonaro is, is, you know, on the verge of potentially being elected. Uh, this is far scarier to me because the widespread acceptance of nationalism, extreme nationalism is, is growing. Uh, and uh, it's something I don't want to see happen.
In your discussion with uh, Sam Harris, you talked a bit about um, giving certain people no platform to discuss their ideas who might be on, on whatever end of the spectrum, could be both ends. Uh, sure. Um, where do you draw the line in terms of censorship? I mean, censorship would be one way to you know, get that out, but where do you, I mean, it's, it's not a solution, as we all know. So, so yeah. how do you see that whole uh, situation? Shall we you know, people a platform? Shouldn't we? You know, there's a, there is, I think there is a line, but I, I think I've also changed my opinion somewhat on that since then. Uh, you know, I used to believe that, you know, and certainly hate speech that affects somebody so much that it hurts them physically or terrorizes them or, uh, you know, causes other people to, to harm others. That, you know, I think that that's, there's a line there, mm -hmm. right? But I, I do believe we should be able to say what whatever we think, uh, but also know that there are uh, repercussions for that. You know, there, there's no freedom on, on your speech to other people. In America, we have freedom of speech, but that is our freedom against the government to infringe on our speech, not against each other. We, you know, there is no such thing as a hate speech law in America. There is no, uh, we have free speech. But when that causes violence, when that incites a movement that, um, that is killing people on a regular basis, in fact, is killing people more than any other radical terrorist extremist group in our country um you know there there's a line there but i think the way i've changed my opinion is that the way to combat uh hate speech is with more speech it's with education uh, it's not by limiting it because when you limit speech you embody the same ideas of the people that you are fighting against who want to limit you so it doesn't it just doesn't make sense to me and that's why i don't believe violence can solve violence either And and how can people, especially young people, filter? I mean, if there's speech and more speech and more speech, at some point it just gets well. Sure, you to, to you know look through the whole thing. So so what? We have to be responsible adults and give them information that is beneficial for them and doesn't divide or hurt them. Uh, you know, it, you know, we can say, well, you know, how can young people? What can they believe? Well, it's up to us to give them the the information. You know, for them to to digest. So we have to look at ourselves. It's, it, you know, we're creating this problem. Uh, and I say we as kind of, you know, just the general uh, society. Um, you know, we're creating this, this world. We're paying for it. We're buying into it. Uh, we're, uh, we're enabling it. And, and we're leaving it as a legacy for the next generation to deal with. Mm. And frankly, I think they're far more equipped than we are to deal with it, uh, to be honest. Uh, because, I, you know, I think... Uh, the world has progressed. I think we understand things more than than my generation did, and your generation, you know, does now. Um, but uh, but it, it, that doesn't remove the responsibility from us to fix it now, uh, because they're better equipped to deal with it. It's our responsibility to them to to make sure that they don't have to deal with it, or at least have you know something to to work from. I see. Um, the people that you help to disengage hmm. at what point in their life are they usually and what are the biggest challenges that they face? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, they range in, in every age and, and, you know, they're male and, and female and uh, every person's different on what they need. Uh, you know, I, I've worked with 15 year old boys, 17 year old girls, 60 year old men, 40 year old women, uh, you know, it's certainly more male 
dominated, uh, you know, extremist movements are more male dominated, but uh, the female component is actually growing because they've learned that they can use women to be the mouthpieces, the propagandists, because it attracts men. Uh, so they've, you know, they've gotten a little bit savvier in that respect. Uh, but, you know, really it is about just building resilience in the human being uh, and connecting them to, you know, to, to knowledge and knowledge is sometimes meeting somebody. So that's, that's typically what I do with everybody. Okay. Um, the person who introduced you 25 or 30 years ago, Clark, um, did you ever get in touch with him again? That is the mystery of my life, my friend, because I can tell you that after he went to prison, so he went to prison when I was 16 years old. And that's when I, I was the last person remaining. Everybody had gone to prison by that point. So that's when I took over leadership of the organization. Um, he went to prison. I saw him one time in 1994, uh, 1995. Yes, out of prison. I was out of the One, an event that I was doing with a band that was not a political band. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, he didn't say hello. He didn't, you know, he, he recognized me. I recognized him. It was very uncomfortable. We didn't speak. It was at a concert, so it was easy to get lost in the crowd, so I didn't have to see him. Uh, and I haven't seen him or heard from him since. Uh, and in fact, when I was writing my book, uh, I tried to, you know, pull public information, uh, you know, related to his birthday and things like that. So I had things accurate in the book. Uh, and every place that I knew to look, uh, I knew where he was born. I knew, you know, his birthday. Uh, there were no records found of this man with mm -hmm. this name, with this birthday, or with this prison record. Oh, okay. So he lived under a false identity? I don't know. I wish I could tell you. I knew. I, I wish I knew the answer to it. But uh, for for all purposes, he's disappeared. He's a ghost and he never existed. And from your former peers that were in touch? Well, it. I mean, he's a real person. Many, many people have met him. He's in, he, he was the first American neo-Nazi yeah. skinhead leader. He started this. Movement. You never heard from anyone who got in touch with him again. It's, it's just, I've heard stories, legends and rumors, uh, but uh, there's no, there's no indic unless I have information wrong, which I don't think I do because it's the same information everybody has. Uh, it's uh, it, it's a mystery. I wish I could. I wish I knew the answer to that because it would help me with a lot. I want closure. Uh, I just uh, Clark Reed Martell, born in Billings, Montana, does uh, does not exist anywhere on earth today that I'm aware of. It's really strange indeed. Maybe he maybe he died as a homeless person and no record was filed of his death. I don't know. But okay. uh, let's not get into conspiracy theories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the time when you left the organization you also disconnected from your family from your wife from your two sons at that point i believe uh, disconnect me disconnecting from her is a very nice way to put that thank you she divorced me and she took the children <laughs> okay but uh, yes i lost um, everything i lost my business because i walked away after i became embarrassed to sell the racist music i removed it from the store and it was so much of my revenue was 75 that i couldn't sustain the store anymore so i closed the store Uh, I didn't have a great relationship with my parents because I was angry at them still. Mm -hmm. And they, they tried, but it, I was not having it. Uh, my wife and my children left uh, and I walked away from the movement. Uh, I lost, you know, I lost everything. I lost everything that I knew who I was, both for my family and the hope for the future and who I had been for eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wish I could tell you I was brave and that I told them, you know, 
I told him off or something like that. And, you know, I said, you know, I made a big, I, I walked away quietly and I was afraid. I, I, I ran because I didn't want to admit my past to, to people. I tried to make new friends. I'd never talked about who I was. Um, okay. And until I, until I couldn't anymore. Did you have a chance to reconnect? With my family? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, my kids are now 26 and 24 years old. They're not babies anymore. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, uh, I never lost touch with them. That was always very important as I, I was always, even though we were divorced, I was always there uh, for them. I had, you know, uh, shared custody every weekend and, uh, and my parents, of course, I've reconnected uh, with them. They never gave up on me. Uh, all these people who never gave up on me saved my life and I owe them, I owe them everything. What do you think? What did they think about you? I think they're proud. I think, um, you know, it's, I, I think I'm just trying to be a, a human being. So I, you know, I, it's very uncomfortable for me when people, you know, and I think my parents and my family knows that it's, this is just regular business. We should all be doing, you know, these things. We should all be compassionate. We should all have empathy for, for marginalized people. So, you know, I know that they're proud of me. Um, but I also think that they know I don't like compliments very much. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Um, the, the people that you've heard in the past, um, yeah. there were a lot of people, I guess. Um, did you have a chance to reconnect with those people to apologize, or to, to explain your situation, to explain where you are now? Some of them, uh, the ones that I could find, of course, uh, you know, there were some that were strangers. I had no idea who they were. And, and for them, you know, I hope the work that I'm doing to help, people disengage and, and talking about these issues is, is providing some comfort to them. I know I could never uh, apologize for that. So an apology makes me feel better. It doesn't do anything for anybody else. Uh, and for the people I have been able to connect, I've been lucky enough to find them and, and, and uh, receive their forgiveness. Uh, one of them was uh, the old uh, security guard from my high school, uh, a black man who uh, I had terrorized when I was in school. Um, I had protested, there were fights, I had fought with him and, and, uh, and uh, I met him one day, you know, by chance, by fate. Uh, and uh, I was so embarrassed. I hadn't talked about my past with anybody. And when I saw him, uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say to him. And, and I just apologized. I said, I'm sorry. And, and he made me promise one, uh, after forgiving me to tell my story and two, that I wouldn't just apologize because again, that makes me feel better. It did nothing for him uh, that I would make amends. And I've been doing that, uh, I think you know, for almost 20 years now. So <laughs> what are warning signs in terms of well, what are early warning signs that people are getting radicalized? Uh, are there certain things sure. that you can, can, can see that are typical for people who get radicalized, something that parents can, can look out for that friends can, see potentially yeah i mean I, th i think it's not rocket science i think that we start to become radicalized the day we're born mm -hmm. uh, and it's just when we find that outlet that that radicalization happens um so you know ideology is like a permission slip it's like the driver's license that says okay now you can be angry and be really loud about it uh but You know, nobody wakes up with a, you know, a swastika tattoo or, or hating anybody or, uh, you know, interested in joining a cult or becoming a school shooter or doing any of these things. Those are, that's all extremism. 
uh, or even falling into sex trafficking or becoming addicted to drugs. That's extremism lifestyle. So all the warning signs are the same. You know, somebody who's marginalized, somebody who's lonely, who doesn't have an outlet or a good foundation, who doesn't have, uh, you know, opportunity. Um, same can be said about gangs in my city of Chicago, uh, you know, where, where people aren't supported or don't feel they have, they have a positive outlet. Um, sometimes the only option uh, is not a positive outlet. And that's an unfortunate situation that people, you know, don't have access to the help that they need, whether it's you know, therapy uh, or a job, uh, because desperation really leads to extremism. It's it's not about uh, it's not about heroism. It's not about me wanting to save something. It's about me wanting to destroy something. Has it become harder to identify those people? Because you know, in 30 years ago, you know, we, you were shaving your heads and you know, yeah. wearing the Spartans and, and white uh, shoelaces and everything. Nowadays, you know, radicals are wearing suits and are fully integrated in society. They have stable jobs and, and uh, other forms of communicating. Has it become harder to find those people, identify those people and work against those people? Absolutely. I mean, our, our, our mission back then was to terrify people by being seen. I mean, that was part of it. Um, there, were men, there were fewer of us, at least who were extremists at that point. Um, but at one point, we, we recognized that we were too extreme, that we were turning people away that maybe we could have recruited if we just maybe were a little bit softer, if we just maybe made our words not so offensive, but had the same meaning. Uh, and, uh, you know, essentially we traded the boots for suits. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, 30 years ago, we recognized that and we encouraged people to get jobs in education and become teachers and to become police officers and, and uh, join the military to get training and, and uh, you know, even run for politics if, if their record was clean. Um, and, uh, you know, here we are. It is much more difficult to see uh, what is coming because they are our neighbors and they look like you. And they look like me now and, and, and you know, like our, our friends and our family and our doctors and our lawyers. And that's the unfortunate situation is it's very difficult to, to know what extremism is and what the impact is in, in, in the world without somebody opening their mouth or committing an action. And now it's not about waving a flag anymore. It's about being part of the fabric. I see. Um, after you've left, um, you read about that you fell into a deep depression because you lost your sense of meaning, you had to disconnect from everyone that was your literal or virtual family in a way. Um, how did you pull yourself out of that? Uh, it wasn't easy, let me tell you, because I would wake up uh, you know, wishing that I hadn't every day. Um, You know, I got an opportunity. Uh, a friend urged me to, to, you know, to, to not die. She said, I don't want to see you die, basically, after, you know, after five years of this, she, you know, recognized it. Um, and uh, she urged me to, to go apply for a job at a company that she worked. Uh, and it was a very small company that none of your, your viewers have ever heard of called IBM. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I thought she... Yes, I thought she was crazy because, you know, here I am, this uh, ex-Nazi with still, you know, I still had the tattoos. I, uh, I hadn't gone to college. I hadn't, uh, I'd been kicked out of six high schools, one of them twice. And uh, I didn't even own a computer, I don't even think at the time. Uh, it was a ridiculous, you know, for me to even consider it. But I went, you know, she was a good friend and I didn't want to let her down. And, and uh, 
they asked me to come back for another interview and eventually they offered me a, a job uh, and it was an entry level position. It was not, you know, a computer programmer it was installing computers at uh, businesses and, and universities and schools. Uh, and I was, uh, I was thrilled. That was hope for me. Uh, and then they told me where I'd be going to install those computers on my first day of work. And uh, when they told me it was my old high school, the same one I'd been kicked out of twice and they had no idea about my past, Suddenly, I wasn't so hopeful anymore. Suddenly, I was terrified again. Mm. And uh, But I worked through it. And that's where I met the security guard uh, who really gave me a second chance. And, and uh, it just started there. And, and my life changed immediately. Are you guys still in touch? Or is he still alive? He's still alive. Uh, I actually I met him uh, again for the first time in, in maybe 18 years, uh, just a few months ago. Uh, and now uh, we, we communicate on a regular basis. We plan on going fishing soon. Uh, and uh, he's an amazing guy. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he told me one time, he said, you know, I didn't just raise you in that school. I didn't just have, you know, a job to, to keep my eye over you. I, I raised thousands of you and I saw thousands of people like you, not that believed in the same thing, but that could have, or that could have gone a different way. And he's the one who told me, you, you know, It's not in your DNA to do that. You just found that path, or frankly, that path found you when you weren't looking for it, but you were looking for something. You did a lot of things that I'm sure you regret. Oh, yeah, of course. Of, of all these things, what's the biggest regret? <laughs> That's a really tough question because I, you know, there are so many, uh, you know, I regret every time I hurt somebody. Uh, I, re I regret every time I, I hurt somebody by recruiting them and bringing them into a movement that, that maybe never would have found had it not been for me. Uh, I regret uh, the seeds that I planted years ago that still are, are growing uh, you know, into weeds today. Uh, I regret not being there for enough for my brother during those years because, uh, you know, after I left the movement, we'd grown apart and then he was murdered and I never got the opportunity to, to spend that time with him. He wanted to be like, me. he didn't get involved in the same things that I did, but, uh, he looked up to me and I wasn't there when, when he was young, the same way that, you know, maybe my parents weren't there for me. So uh, I feel that I failed him and, uh, you know, I really try and be that, that, that brother now for everybody else who maybe needs a little bit of help, just like that soccer coach. Um, people who need help, how can they reach out to you? Can you talk about what, how, what's the best way to contact you and sure. um, your organizations? Sure. Uh, they, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, you know, they can just Google my name and they'll have a multitude of ways to, to contact me. But the easiest way is, is to just go to my website and uh, use the form there. And it's uh, Christian Picciolini. Dot com. I trust that you'll maybe put a graphic because it's a, not an easy name to spell, <laughs> as you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, they can contact me there or on social media. Um, you know, I, I get requests from people every day or every time I speak, it's inevitable somebody will come up to me and say, I'm in the same boat that you were in and I'd like to talk about it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I encourage people to not be afraid. Everything is confidential. I'm not interested in, in, you know, arguing with them or changing their mind. I want them to change their own mind uh, based on, on new information. And, and what if people are afraid of, of repercussions from their peers and from, you know, their, their family in a way? Um, what could you tell them to, to get them to do that step, to take the step and to 
do the first step to leave these organizations. And it, they should be worried. It is dangerous. It can be. Uh, but I can tell them it's more dangerous if they stay, that their, that their end will come sooner, trust me, if they are involved with these organizations rather than being brave enough or finding the courage to leave now. And I know it's not easy, but that's why there are people like me, people who have left. And I'm not the only one. There are others like me, many others who've left. Uh, and we're here to help them through that transition. That's amazing. Um, Kristen, I know you have another interview coming up, so I, do. um, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, I always end these um, conversations with two, two questions that I'm asking everybody. Um, the first question is, this is a series of interviews with extraordinary people from, from across the globe, from all different areas of life. Um, who would you consider an extraordinary person that I might even talk to next? Wow. Someone that inspired uh, you, someone that, that changes the world, someone that's... I feel like every person I meet that I work with inspires me. Um, but I, you know, I would say there's an extraordinary individual. Uh, her name is Shannon Martinez. I knew her uh, 25 years ago. We were both involved in this movement and we reconnected later. Uh, and she's now become uh, one of my best friends. She's the mother of seven children. She's wow. an amazing person. Uh, she's lived a, a, a very... Um, she's lived a very transformative and traumatic life. And I think her story is powerful. Uh, and I think it's one that uh, both men and women need to hear, especially in this time when, uh, you know, we're really trying to understand how it is we're breaking this world even further and, and hopefully, you know, now trying to fix it. So um, I'm happy to put you in touch with her, but she's an amazing human being. I will reach out to her. She sounds very interesting. And uh, finally, to close the conversation with uh, your message, what's your core message that's close to your hearts to anyone who's watching or listening to this podcast? Can, can I give them two? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Can so one, one, one's a longer one. One's a super easy one. But the longer one is really just, you know, find. I challenge people, find somebody that you think is undeserving of your compassion and give it to them and then pay attention because it changes people and, you know, getting it from the people we least deserve it from is so powerful. Uh, but, and they need it the most, I guarantee it. Uh, and my second one is very simple. That's three words. Somebody challenged me one time to come up with a mission statement for my life. Okay. Three words. That's, and that's right. For mission and it was hard. And mm -hmm. I thought about it and then I came up with it and I've tried to live every decision or moment by those three words. And it's just make good happen. If it doesn't make good happen, if it doesn't fit that definition or criteria, you probably shouldn't do it. And it's been, it's worked pretty well so far. Christian, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you. I hope to talk to you very soon again. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching. And in a few seconds, you'll hear about the extraordinary person that I'm going to talk to in my next conversation. But before that, I need to ask you for your help. See, Finding people who inspire and motivate you to make a change, that's what's most important to me. But to connect you with these amazing people and to bring you conversations that you will not find anywhere else, I need you to become a part of our journey. So please get involved and leave a comment below with your own questions and maybe even tell me who I should talk to next. And if you know anyone who might like this conversation, then please share it because I'm sure that they will like it too and it will help to grow this channel and to make an impact together. And by the way, on my website, you will find all current and upcoming episodes, including show notes and transcripts, background info, books and websites of my guests, podcast links, and much more. And once you become an email subscriber, there is always some exclusive content. So don't forget to sign up and I'll see you in the next conversation.
In the next episode, Rob talks to Myrna Valerio. What picture do you have in your mind when you hear the words ultramarathon runner? Whatever it is, it's unlikely that it's Myrna Valerio. She's big, she's black, she's bold, she's the fat girl running, and she defies all stereotypes with her love of the sport. Rob and Myrna talk about the kind of attacks she had to deal with while doing what she loves most, how to get through the suffering and pain of running 100 miles and more, close encounters with cacti and bears, and much more. Join the conversation now at robconrad.com.